1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talker Radio. It is the hangover after the day before, as parts of Britain wake up having spent the day enjoying hospitality, staying out of the rain and visiting their local pub for the first time since last year. But there's a little cloud on the horizon, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and it is called the collection of doomsayers who want the lockdown restrictions reimposed just because of a new variant to coronavirus that so far is causing minimal problems in a couple of small communities in England. Apparently there's going to be some kind of crunch cabinet meeting today for the government to work out what to do next. Well, I'll tell you what to do next. Do what you said you were gonna do, which is to open up the economy fully on June the 21st. No more masks, no more social distancing, no more nonsense. Let's get it on, for heaven's sake. If that just about sums up your mood, I'm delighted to report that I saw even fewer people wearing masks than normal this morning on the streets of London and more people actually out and about. I'm convinced that the fog of fear for the majority of people in this country is lifting, but at the same time, the professor class and the media manipulators continue to cling to their life rafts, hoping to steer the great ship of Britannia onto the rocks. One of the great mysteries of the age is why so many people in government seem to want to keep us in a state of fear and why so many people are falling for it. We'll be speaking to author Laura Dodsworth whose new book A State of Fear identifies the problem 0344 499 1000 We were all out yesterday in the horseshoe with a host of great guests and I'm delighted to report that we met lots of great enthusiasts for talk radio and the independent republic lots of people saying you're the only people we listen to now uh, because everybody else is talking absolute and utter tosh tell us what you got up to yesterday, last night and how your week is going so far if your business is finally up and running again do let us know you are our eyes and ears we like you to tell us so we can tell everybody else. 03444991000. We'll find out just exactly what the situation is up in Bolton and Blackburn and we're heading over to Portugal as well later on to find out just how many people are heading over there now that they can even though they have to wear a mask on the beach. Are you having a laugh? That's not a holiday. Uh, That's a sentence isn't it? And we'll be asking why the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds has been accused of sexism for depicting female birds as smaller than male ones. I mean, when it starts to seep into the animal kingdom, you start to worry, don't you? Uh, For heaven's sake. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Is it any wonder we are Talk Radio? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say for the very first time on this show, I think we're going to speak to Laura Dodsworth. She's an author. She's a photographer. She's a journalist. She's written many books. She's written a new book called A State of Fear, uh, because I think one of the things we're all slightly puzzled by, those of us who are not living in a state of fear, why so many people actually are. And what is the government doing making people live in a state of fear? I mean, why would they want to do that? Let's talk to Laura right now. Laura, very good morning to you.
3: Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. No,
2: thank you so much for joining us. It's long overdue, I think, the fact that you and I are having a conversation. Um, Tell us a bit about the book, first of all, uh, A State of Fear. What made you write it? What made you decide to write it? And and what conclusions have you drawn from it?
3: Well, I think like the whole nation, I was just flung backwards into my armchair with a whiplash of shock and fear when Boris Johnson addressed the nation on the 23rd of March Mm. when he told us we must stay at home. It was a really astonishing speech. It used a lot of warlike language, a lot of martial language. And I'd done quite a lot of research. You know, This is what I do. I love researching and investigating. And I had a different sense of the scale of the threat to that point. And the government had performed quite a U-turn in its approach to the virus. So that night scared me. It scared me for lots of reasons. I was worried about the epidemic, like a lot of people were, but I was very worried about authoritarianism Mm. and the measures we were taking. I mean, we'd never done this before. We'd never locked down before. We'd never said healthy people have to stay at home and can't go out to work. Um, And I was worried about what the effect would be on society and the economy and on people's health, everything really. But his speech really got me thinking. I thought, why is he trying to create so much alarm I think there was a lot of fear in the air that night. You caught it one way or the other. It was released like an airborne virus. You know, you it was scary. It was really scary. I think people remember that like they, it's like watching the Queen's speech on Christmas day, but not happy. Mm. You know, you will, we'll all remember where we were when, we, when that happened. And I thought that the big story really of the, the last year is how did everyone become so, so frightened? Um, the, The investigation has taken me on a a really fascinating and sometimes quite disturbing journey. What I've uncovered is how deeply embedded behavioural psychology is Mm. in governments. So they use this technique called nudge. Now a nudge is not a mandate, it's a behavioural psychology technique to get you to do what they want you to do, Mm. to change your behaviour. Behaviour is not about feelings, it doesn't care about how you feel, but it will use your feelings to change your behaviour, to make you the model citizen. There are lots of ways this has been employed in quite innocuous ways like making you pay your taxes on time or um, making smoking less desirable, trying to encourage us to lose weight, to lock up the biscuit tins. But what they've done this time is lock us up and my book sets out the argument that the use of fear is ethically dubious. What I do is take you through how this happens, how governments use fear, how our government has used fear, who is behind it, the behavioural psychologists Spy b they're the advisors that feed into SAGE and government, um, the tactics they used and the impacts it's mm. had. And I've also interviewed people who've been quite undone by fear this year because we can't talk about the life that might be saved potentially from a lockdown if we don't talk about the life lost when somebody jumped from a bridge or didn't get treatment mm. because they were too scared to leave the house and yeah. go to hospital. Yeah, listen, I mean, I've spoken,
2: talk- I've spoken to people on this show who have called in. Um, I remember one woman from last week who's now currently suffering from stage four cancer who would not be suffering from stage four cancer had she seen a doctor a year ago uh, when she was only suffering from stage one cancer. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I asked this, I'm so happy that you've, you've picked up on this because I asked this question a long time ago uh, through the pandemic when we discovered who SAGE were and who was actually part of SAGE and what they were all about. And I said, I'm sure this means that we've been the victims of all of this for a very long time, that they've been using these characters to, to change government policy, to change public policy, to change public behaviour all over the place. Mm. you you're so
3: right now i keep an idea on the job ads um and they don't start recruiting behavioral scientists this is this is really big business mm. unfortunately the business of fear is big business now for the government and it really disturbs me because i don't think this is the way to work towards what we imagine society should look like you know in a democracy you don't try and persuade people subtly beneath the level of their consciousness mm. You give them the facts and you let them make up their mind about what they want to do or you have laws and mandates you know then at least people know what they're up against the thing about this very heavy use of behavioral psychology we have is that people are being subliminally manipulated Mm. without knowing what it does is strip choice away but the use of fear is particularly disturbing now if a psychologist wanted to scare you in a lab you would have to sign a consent form. You'd have to agree to the process. Mm. And you would leave the lab very happy. You know, they'd make you watch a happy film and give you a slice of chocolate cake. You know, we're not getting happy films and chocolate cake, but we're getting is more, more nudge. Mm. It just hasn't stopped. You know, it's I, I was nodding along as you introduced the show, because here we are the day after our, our restrictions are being released and actually, you know, we're having more scary things dangled over us yeah. to keep the level of alarm high. As you said, the, uh, the so-called Indian variant hasn't actually caused any big problems for us yet, and yet no. we're being told that might be why restrictions can't be released yeah. on the 21st of June. But this is and their favourite
2: word, isn't it? Their favourite word is could, might. You never hear them actually saying anything specifically, this will happen. They never use that that terminology.
3: I think that's a really good point. And actually... It's, that's quite tortuous for people because people need certainty yeah. and they need deadlines. This is a little bit like Christmas. Do you remember? It was on, it yeah. was off. It was on, it was off. And that really caused a lot of distress and stress for people. It's this huge celebration. It's one of the most important days in our calendar. We didn't know what was happening. Yeah. And now everyone's had the 21st of June to look forward to. We were told we could cry freedom by Easter. And now we're being told it might be retracted. But I think there's something that's behind this. And you see, it is the nudging. Mm. Look at the language around the vaccine. We're being told that vaccine refusenix will hold up the easing of restrictions. But this is quite a dangerous path to go down. You know, othering people and dehumanizing people and using critical language to scapegoat them just creates a blame game among people and a lot of ill will. And it creates fear. You know, which team do you want to be in? Do you want to be in the nasty team that's keeping everybody in lockdown? Or do you want to be on the good, heroic team that's had the jab? Right. It's, I don't think it's a very nice way to encourage people to have a medical intervention. You know, tell people how effective it is, make it available... Don't tell people that yeah. they're holding up lockdown for everyone else. It's a tactic of fear again. Yeah. It's a demonising.
2: So my- it's a demonising tactic in the same way that Neil O'Brien, the Tory MP who's now sitting happily in the cabinet, apparently responsible for the levelling up of the country, decided to start compiling a list of journalists that he thought might be uh, refuseniks in some way, people who might be dissidents. You know, sort of thing that the, the, the former Soviet Union would have done, the former, you know, gulag merchants would have done to say, "Off you go, get re-educated. We don't want you talking like this because you're upsetting people." People. I mean, I find it quite extraordinary.
3: Yeah, the, the use of the word "refuse" Nick is interesting. This is no accident. It's supposed to take us back to Reds under the bed. It's like who wants to be one of those commie vaccine yeah. deniers? You know, it's crazy language, mm. and it's not. It's just not fair play. It's not treating us like adults in a mature relationship with our government. Um, I think that list of journalists was really disturbing. Mm. You know, I was really disappointed that a member of the British government in 2020 made a list of journalists. Mm. And not just journalists, but scientists too. Scientists too, yeah. Highly, highly credible, respected scientists mm. because they went against the government narrative. If you're going to list um, the mistakes you believe people have made, but you only list one set of mistakes that go against the government narrative, that's propaganda. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It really is, and there's no question that that's what they've been engaged in. And they've even admitted it, and people still don't get it. You know, even Whitty and Valance stood up, I think it was back in um, November, and actually admitted at one of their briefings that they had refused to show one part of the graph because it wouldn't have actually compared as badly as they wanted it to to what was going on in the previous summer. They also admitted that sometimes they overestimated um, the numbers of deaths in order to frighten people into behaving properly. But yet people are still frightened into behaving properly. Yeah,
3: I think that um, by now there's a really high level of suspicion towards these tactics. Ultimately, that's quite damaging for our trust in the government and also trust in public health. So this is where it gets dangerous, you know. I want to trust my government has my best interests at heart and will tell me the truth. And I certainly want to extend that trust to everybody who's advising on public health. But if you feel like you're being misled or your fears are being exaggerated, that doesn't lead to a trusting relationship between government and citizen. I mean, that particular shock and awe presentation that you refer to by witty and balance, that was called out. Mm. I think Theresa May said in Parliament um, that they were taking the statistics to suit the policy uh not the policy to suit the statistics right. and the national statistics authority also very rarely made a comment mm. about the use of statistics during the epidemic as well um it's not right to per- cherry pick the data but unfortunately that's happened all year
2: yeah that's exactly what they've done which brings us i suppose Laura to the the $64,000 question why are they doing this because it doesn't appear to be Beneficial to the economy. It's certainly not beneficial to the nation's health overall. Um, so I can't ever quite get an answer to that. I don't believe that they're somehow in league with the World Economic Forum and they're trying to c- contain us all into some bizarre new world where nobody owns anything um, and everybody's renting a flat. I don't think it's that. I don't think it's because they're um, completely and utterly in thrall uh, with leading everybody down uh, the path like some kind of Pied Piper of Hamlin. I just think it's partly because they don't know what else to do and they can, they, they haven't learned how to say no to these sage advisers.
3: It's really hard to call that one out. And I have to be honest, I don't in my book. My book is about how the UK government weaponised fear and it's less about why. Um, I think what's important is that people understand what sort of manipulation has occurred. Mm. The book in itself is like an anti-nudge guidebook. Once you know these techniques, you're kind of protected from them. So I think that's important. And it makes a clarion call for a public inquiry into the use of behavioural psychology and specifically the weaponisation of fear, not just in this epidemic, but historically. There have been calls before for a public consultation on this and we've not yet had it. Mm. We really need it. I think the why is hard. Look, while a house is burning, you don't necessarily know what's caused the fire. Um, you have to wait till the ashes are cooled. And all of those whys really belong in a public inquiry, which I sincerely hope will be robust and honest and independent. I can't say why they do it, but i it's a story as old as time. Governments have leaned on fear to engender the results they want forever. Mm. Um, and unfortunately the tools now at their disposal are that much more sophisticated. Behavioural psychology is very sophisticated, Um, data analytics, the use of social media. It's all too easy, Um, and we need to be aware of the tools. The why, I can't answer for you.
2: Well, can we make people more robust then? Because fortunately for me... Uh, I'm not quite sure why, but I've always suffered from defined syndrome. So whereby anybody telling me something to do, uh, I immediately want to do something completely different and probably to the opposite uh, extreme. So I've instilled that in most of my kids as well. Um, And a lot of people like me uh, are the same. And and, and we're now a sort of two tier society. The people who say just no, thank you very much. We're not having any of that. You know, I was saying yesterday's Peter Hitchens. I walked through london bridge station and it's unbelievable how many signs there are you know which go everything from you know stay to the right to wear a face covering to you know wash your hands to be kind to you know uh, the trains this way you know it's just incredible um we've, we've sort of suddenly become this society where people have become so used to being told what to do that if nobody tells them what to do they don't know what to do
3: yeah, but you have to remember during this very cleverly that was dressed up as being social responsibility, yeah. being a hero, being good, protecting others. So what they did was make people afraid. Fear of death is a very powerful, powerful thing. And then around that led up with social responsibility and moral virtuousness. So everything you did was to protect others, but at the same time it was really to protect yourself. Mm. It's it's a very it's a very powerful um tool. But we are all different, and I think we should all all also welcome that. The problem is that people who can be more sceptical, like you, and I'm gonna call your defiance syndrome intelligence and scepticism, because <laughs> I think that's, well, that's what I it is so, really. Yeah. And yeah, and, and me, you know, we're also important members of society. You know, the outliers, the people who think out the box, we're all needed, you know, we all make up one society. and We should welcome different ways of thinking, not, not trying to scapegoat people that don't seem to fit into the narrative. So some people are very comfortable with clear guidance and clear rules and others aren't i think there's a difference there between guidance and mandates and there's also a difference between guidance and sneaky nudges when mm. we can't see what they are and we just need to be more transparent about all of it yes people can become more robust behavioral psychology 100 i would argue of course i would that reading the book is a good start because you'll understand more about what's happened in the last year um also, people become increasingly emotional the longer they watch bad news and watch social media. Take breaks, come mm. back from it, and also research research a bit more widely, look at different viewpoints, um, and maintain an open yeah. mind. I think, that, there's I think, actually.
2: Oh, sorry, I was going to say, I think part of the reason why people have kind of bought it quite so much as they have is that they've looked around into Europe they've looked around the world they've also seen other countries governments doing the same kinds of things and so it doesn't appear abnormal I think if Britain had been the only country doing it it might have been slightly more resistant you know, whereas because people were looking at Italy at the time, I remember um, those terrible pieces of footage of India, of, uh, of, of Italy in March of last year, where they were sort of taking corpses out of hospitals. They were piling them high inside the hospitals. They were driving, you know, lorries full of dead people around in the middle of the night. Ooh. And that was quite a frightening vision for, I think, a lot of politicians, mm. not least the, the population, you know.
3: Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting example. And they talk about that in the book. That particular footage was not because they were over with bodies, no, it's because at that particular point in time, lots of funeral directors were in isolation, so they called in the army mm. for a one-off moving of bodies. Right. But instead of that being very accurately verified by the initial uh, picture desk at an agency, it's blasted out all over the world. And the impression it would have given you is that Italy is overrun with dead bodies. Right. It's a one-off example
2: mm. because They're still directors were in isolation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I call them media manipulators because that's what they are. And I'm sorry to say that there are many of my, you know, colleagues in this very business that we are in. They're doing the same thing in India. We spoke to an Indian chef yesterday, Cyrus Todiwala, uh, who has family in India, and he says, you know, it's nothing like the way it's being portrayed. You know, yes, there are hot spots, and yes, there are people dying, but it's nothing like as bad uh, as the way that it's being made to look by the BBC and by Sky.
3: It's really difficult. I mean, I something that I found quite a bitter pill to swallow last year was that I lost trust in some of my former trusted sources. That was a shock to me. Mm. It was a bit of an epiphany. There is a whole chapter dedicated to the media in the book to explain why these things happen. Because also journalists are people, you know, they're subject to the same fears. They can be really busy. Busy. You can have slightly too close relationships between politicians or political journalists it's a complicated situation but the media has definitely engaged in a lot of the doom-mongering i mean in the last year we've been told to be scared of everything from ice cream to semen you know covid was everywhere it was 24 7 fear-mongering but sadly never without the context without the context of what people of from, you know, like the, the figures in India now, they do sound alarming. And I don't want to refute that there's a virus in India and that people are dying from it. But we have never looked at other infectious diseases or any other causes of death in India yeah. with the same lens. Well, funnily enough- And if you put it into context, it would be, it would, you know, if we did this all the time, we'd be permanently anxious about death and yeah. disease. And this isn't actually a very nice way to live. It's I not. think we'll all be glad when it's behind us.
2: No, I mean, lots of people are alarmed at the fact that between three and 4,000 people a day are dying in India from COVID. Well, guess what? 27,000 die every day from all sorts of reasons, because it's got a very big population. It's got a very low health ratio to uh, to, to human uh, sort of, you know, potential living Um, standards. And quite simply, it's a very poor country in many places. And so there's an awful lot of people who die for all sorts of reasons. So, you know, it's very easy to take everything out of context. But Laura, listen, we're out of time, sadly. Great to talk to you. Uh, The book is called A State of Fear, available, I assume, from all good bookshops, now that you can go in one?
3: Yes, available everywhere. I'd really recommend people look at their independent or companies like Blackwell's, Waterstones, Foils. It's quite hard to find on Amazon. There's something a bit strange going on where if you search for it, it doesn't come up, really? but you can find it in the bestseller list. Yay. And um, <laughs> you can also follow what my pinned tweets, but do look at your independent or hive
2: or word is great for international as well. Okay. Brilliant stuff. Lauren Dosworth, Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Journalist, photographer, author of a state of fear, uh, which sounds like a very, very interesting book. Indeed. I think you should get right into it and find out what it is that's going on. Because I think the question why, is really interesting, and we may not have an answer for that.
4: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: Uh, let's speak to Dr. Renee Honderkamp, uh, NHS GP uh, medical writer, of course, as well. Renee, very good morning to you. Welcome.
5: Morning, Mike. How are you?
2: Yeah, very well indeed. Thank you for, for joining us. It's, uh, it's a bit of a tricky old time, isn't it? It's almost as though they don't want to uh, lift all the restrictions. It's almost as if they don't want to say that everything's fine because I don't know whether they're scared of their own shadows. I mean, what's going on?
5: I have no idea, Mike. And I'm, I'm absolutely fed up with this as you are. Mm. I'm terrified for my friends, my family and my patients whose mental health has just been stretched too far now. Yeah. This is actually almost aching to psychological
2: terror. It really is. And I mean, Lord Dalton was just saying, um, you know, there's no doubt whatsoever that this government, uh, with the help of SAGE and with the help of these behavioural scientists, has deliberately frightened people to the point where, I mean, I know people who are still now, uh, who were all set for going out this week, but who have now decided, well, there's an Indian variant, maybe we'll just stay home. And, you know, meanwhile, there are people running businesses um, who can't make any money.
5: It's really sad, Mike. And I mean, I'm talking to colleagues. These are intelligent people who are doctors who have had COVID, who have had two vaccines, couldn't be better protected against just about every variant of COVID you could imagine, who are saying, oh, no, you know, it's a bit too soon. We've got the Indian variant. And when I try and talk to them about that sensibly, they're just not listening. They're not listening. They're not researching for themselves, which I find absolutely terrifying. But they're just listening to the government propaganda. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what it is now. We know that the vaccine actually does not, that the the Indian variant doesn't escape the vaccine. So we've vaccinated all of our vulnerable people. What's the problem here? Because the only issue should be if people are getting sick with the Indian variant and ending up in hospital, Mm. which we're not seeing yet. And I do have a theory on that, Mike, that nobody's listening to. And this is the theory that 10 to 20% of vulnerable people, these are people who have had immunosuppression, blood cancers, um, organ transplants, or are very elderly, do not mount a response to the vaccine. Now, 10 to 20% of people means that 80% of people who've had the vaccine are protected. However, sadly... 10 to 20 percent are in that vulnerable group and they're walking around out there. They think they're vaccinated Mm. and protected and they're not. And the sage minutes from a few months ago said that the autumn surge will see 60 to 70 percent of hospital deaths will be in the fully vaccinated. And that can be the only explanation for that. Mm. But they're not talking about it because they want to blame younger people so they can get them vaccinated. Yes. Well, I thought it was really
2: interesting actually over the weekend because they got their narratives mixed up because Matt Hancock at one point went on to tell people that they should get vaccinated while at the same time somebody else was talking about how you know, the fact is the vaccine doesn't actually protect everybody and that's why we have to stay locked down. And I was going, okay, so which one of you two is right? Are you right telling everyone to get vaccinated because it's the only safe way to guarantee that we come out of lockdown or are you right uh saying that we shouldn't get vaccinated um because it might not actually save you anyway you know it's a very interesting picture it's an interesting
5: picture mike and my argument has been that no media wants to cover that what we need to do is everybody that's um had the vaccine or had covid gets an antibody test Mm. which is much much cheaper than the billions of lateral flow tests that we're knocking around in people's kitchens. Um, They get an antibody test and that gives them the answer that they need. Because if you take that within six weeks of the vaccine, if you have no antibodies, then you don't have any protection. But at least you have the information because... What's worse, walking around out there thinking you're protected, and then you do meet the Indian variant or any other variant, to be frank, and you get sick. So I think we should roll out antibody testing. We should have an adult conversation with the population where we say, look, we've done everything we possibly can. We have vaccinated all of the vulnerable people. Sadly, some people won't be protected, but we're going to tell you Mm. who you are and we're going to protect you if that's what you want. If you want to stay at home, off work, we'll pay for it. And then everybody else can get on with their lives. Yeah,
2: I was interesting uh, listening to an interview with John Redwood this morning, right? Uh, and he was saying quite, um, quite plainly um, when he was asked, well, surely the point is, is that everybody needs to get vaccinated. You know, what about those people who don't get vaccinated if they're the ones that end up in hospital? And he said, well, you know, some people are alcoholics. Some people are drug addicts. Some people don't obey the law. Some people put their lives in danger. Some people put themselves in danger by their risky behaviour. That's always going to be the case. And quite frankly, they have the right to do that. If that's what they want to do, I'm really starting to feel a bit uneasy about this kind of, um, you know, demonisation of people who don't want to take the vaccine. If you don't want to take the vaccine, that's entirely your business, entirely your your right. And if I'm nervous about that, then I should get vaccinated so that I'm OK, shouldn't I? Uh,
5: Absolutely. And also when you consider that actually 99% of people are not going to die from this virus, there's a very small amount of people who should be having the vaccine. And if we've got a problem in Bolton because amongst those communities, and we know who they are, they're a bit sceptical of the vaccine. And I understand that, I'm not criticising, I understand that. Then should we really be then blaming all of the young people across the country for those people who may well end up in hospital because they've chosen not to take the vaccine and they are vulnerable to ending up in hospital yeah. if they catch COVID?
2: Well, this is it. I mean, I will tell you what, I haven't heard much about is the uh, the post mortem on the uh, the Liverpool uh, club uh, exhibition. You know, when three thousand people turned up and they had a rave in a club and they all took a positive, uh, took a test and they were all tested negative. But what I haven't seen is anybody reporting back from that saying, Do you know what? Everybody was fine, so let's just have it every single day.
5: But we don't report Um, good news, do we Mike? I mean, if you think about it, people are screaming that we should lock down our borders. In actual fact, what they don't understand is that with a variant, um, the Indian variant has been found in this country with no links to travel whatsoever, because it's a virus doing what a virus does. It's mutating and it will become the Indian variant with those changes in the UK, in Spain, in, you know, in Poland, wherever, you know, locking the borders, doesn't work. And we saw that because if you look at the stats last year, the percentage of travellers that bought in COVID is tiny absolutely tiny. But that's good news, so we don't report that either. No,
2: but the other thing about locking down the borders, I mean, I said this back in September when they decided to start restricting people's travel and I said, well, hang on a minute, you know, look at the list of exemptions for people that can travel and it's so long that you literally, I mean, it's not cool. you're not shutting the borders anyway. I mean, it's not complete nonsense to pretend that you're shutting the borders when you've got 50,000 people coming through Heathrow every week and, you know, that's under restrictive under restrictive measures. You know, there's there are people who work for the EU, Doctors, you know, people who are driving trucks, people who work for the BBC. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's unbelievable.
5: My son is a Formula One mechanic, Mike. And let me tell you, he's done more travelling than anyone could <laughs> imagine in the last year. Sounds
2: a great job, that. Excellent. Well done. <laughs> well done, him. Um, but, you know, I just find and I just find the way that this is being steered um, is now verging on the kind of madness of, of, uh, of, of government, which for some reason just won't change the way that they view the virus, which is what you and I have probably been talking about for a very long time. You know, accept that it's there, work out. I mean, I don't probably have an objection to them doing a a small lockdown in in Bolton and in in Blackburn if that's the way they think they should go. But even at that, you wonder whether they're going to have to get away from that whole idea, because the numbers of people going to hospital is still single figures. Do
5: you know, you're absolutely right. It's really tiny, and I believe I heard... Mr. Hancock said yesterday that the six people that are in hospital are fully vaccinated. So I, you know, I rest my case. Mm. This is where the um, infection will be. But the issue that we have now is that I'm seeing as a GP day in day out patients crying to me about how their lives have been destroyed, how their illnesses are being untreated, how their leg is so painful but yeah. they can't get a knee, you know, a knee replacement. The list, Mike, is endless, and the suffering is massive, mm. much, much bigger than anything we've seen from covid and if we continue to behave like this in our attitude to COVID, we will just make this worse and worse. We'll never get on top of it.
2: No, exactly right. And you'll probably know uh, that we've been pushing for GP surgeries to be opening properly, along with Alison Pearson from The Telegraph. You know, people are starting to take notice of that. But that's another scandal that nobody's really reporting properly. You know, people can't see their own doctor. Uh, if they're lucky, they get to have a video call with them, maybe, uh, uh, if they can get past the receptionist. It's an extraordinary state of affairs.
5: It is an extraordinary state of affairs, but I have to say in defence of GPs that, you know, there are terrible stories, but lots of GPs, me included, have been seeing people throughout yeah. the pandemic. You know, we are doing lots of work on the telephone, and lots of patients love that. It really works for them. But when we really do need to see people, and, you know, I have elderly patients that I see who actually don't have anything really wrong with them, but they need to see a human being, mm. I see them. So, you know, it, it's very postcode lottery, the GP yes. thing. And some no, listen, really I get
2: that. that, and I, I've been very clear on that. I've said there's a lot of people who are doing it right but there's also an awful lot of people who are not doing it right
5: I agree no I agree Mark.
2: so what do you think is the end game here then Dr Renee because they're having this cabinet meeting today uh, which seems to me to be a complete and utter waste of time because if they can't decide what they're going to do until five days before June the 26th or June the 21st anyway what's the point in making a decision now
5: I don't know and I think I'm, I'm horrified by this I think even having so we have a dolly in the background for which I apologize don't worry you take that away, please. Two-year-old on the loose.
2: <laughs> Excellent. Um, it's probably far just, more sensible than anybody currently sitting in the cabinet.
5: I just, I'm terrified that even having a cabinet cabinet meeting today is more psychological pressure on people, convincing them mm. that it's so dangerous that they have to have a cabinet meeting. I mean, every time I see that Boris is having a five o'clock press conference, my my heart. Sinks yes, I'm the same. I wonder what on earth he's going to say, and I just, we need to stop this. We need to do what Chris Whitty said a month ago, we learned to live with this virus, mm. and we have to learn to live with this virus.
2: Absolutely right. Dr. Renee Hodenkamp, thank you very much indeed, and uh, good luck with the two-year-old and the dolly. Uh, I'm sure you'll have a much nicer day than an awful lot of people uh, who don't have a two-year-old and dolly, but there we are.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
6: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio
4: Now there's lots of spreads as we
2: used to call them in the old days of Fleet Street in the papers. The great indoors, pictures of people enjoying themselves sitting in pubs, people sitting in saunas, people working out in gyms, uh, people hugging one another, uh, but of course with great caution because that's what they said you should do. People going out to cafes and having a full English. Uh, thanks very much indeed because you're now allowed to sit inside as opposed to freezing uh, outside. Uh, but uh, has it changed the way we are overnight? Because there's still an awful lot of people now frightened to go out because of what's being told the Indian variant let's talk to Dave Mountford uh, founding member of the former British pubs and see what's going on Dave very good morning to you good
4: morning Mark how are you
2: yeah very well I mean for me it was a good day yesterday because for me uh, to sit inside a pub with my friends doing a radio show you know it's one of the great jobs to have but I know for you guys it's been a miserable time Um, it's been tricky you've had to spend bucket loads of money to be able to try and make some back what was yesterday like for you
4: Personally, disappointing. Anecdotally, that's pretty much the same from most of the people that we're we're speaking to. Obviously, it's very early days, yeah. but um, we were uh, yeah. It was quite a disappointing day yesterday. Uh, we were as busy as uh, no busier than we were um, when when we could only sit outside. Right um so uh, and as i say I've, I've had a lot of feedback from both members and uh, a lot of publicans that were in contact through social media and the general opinion was pretty much the same now the, we don't it's too early days to read too much into that it mm. may be that you uh, quite rightly points out the weather was dreadful yesterday and a much nicer day today and we'll see um but you know th- there is this fear that what we saw once we reopened outside was the hardcore drinkers for want mm. of a better word, the hardcore, yeah. the hardcore people v- revisiting the pub and the people that were slightly uncertain about coming back into a pub but possibly still uncertain. Right. So there is that fear. Um we are uh, obviously we've been penalised heavily by the government. Uh, we've not been supported very well by the government mm. as an industry. Um and, um and and consequently a lot of pubs have opened up in substantial debt having spent a vast amount of money um open up into an uncertain market as i think we've just highlighted uh and uh you know it, it is it's kind of frightening times for mm. a lot of people out it is i mean obviously the fear
2: would be dave that some people are just never going to go back to the pub
4: well <laughs> there is that i mean there's the people have obviously been spending last year getting used to drinking at home um and uh you know it's obviously <laughs> that is that is that is a grave concern um pubs are the safest place. I, I genuinely be- believe to uh, to socialise. Mm. Uh, the, the level of um the level of safety within them is is kind of quite has been very demanding, quite rightly. Uh, and consequently a lot of publicans out there have spent a vast amount of money on that. Mm. Uh, there was never any evidence for the the, the level of uh, severity we were we were put under. We've proved that now as an industry. Uh, and the government uh, was was kind of pretty pretty hysterical about the, the way they treated pubs, mm. pubs and Uh, and associated businesses. So, um, you know, there is that fear factor that we've now got to get over. And I think anybody goes to a pub and goes through that experience right now, I think we've come away very comforted. But whether we've... um, whether we've got to break that barrier at the start is a real concern. Well, that's the trouble, isn't it? Because, I mean, if you
2: follow the logic that the government used to shut down the pubs, you'd actually shut down all the hospitals because the hospitals were where most um. people got COVID, <laughs> where most people got sick and where most people died. But you wouldn't have shut them, you know, the,
4: the, the evidence that a lot more dangerous the evidence was pitiful uh it was we, we managed to get our hands on the evidence i mean it was released to be fair but it was very it was released very quietly uh the evidence was based on uh, literally you know a, a korean and japanese nightclub and a couple of weddings in japan it, mm. it was really and i'm not exaggerating the evidence was was very very weak uh and uh and the government had got this wrong i mean it was only two months ago that uh, rishi sunak was quoted live on tv as saying that the average pub rent is between fourteen thousand and twenty thousand pounds a year. The average pub rent in London is hundred and three thousand pounds. Yeah. In the Midlands, it's fifty five. Mm. Um, the other issue, of course, which I mean, if you asked huge, anyone,
2: they could have told him that. You could have asked me, and I'd have told him that.
4: Well, I mean, it's just ludicrous. But I mean, it demonstrates quite clearly the, the lack of understanding that governments have, or well, the lack of the lack of information that they're being given. Mm. Um, I mean, we've we've had a long running concern about the ownership of pubs, obviously, in this country. The majority of pubs are owned by uh, what are effectively brewer, uh, property companies, yeah. property companies that happen to, happen to own property that that serve beer. And ultimately that that business model, which has been a very uh, controversial business model, shall we say, and that's mm. me being very polite, <laughs> has resulted in um, a lot of pubs being sold for alternative use. Yeah. So there is now a lot of um, uh, supposed breweries, but you know, effectively, as I say, they are property companies. And a lot of them, which are literally banks, um, some of them with their head offices in, in offshore um, tax havens yes. who are probably looking at pubs and thinking, you know, let's let's offload a load. And that is the biggest concern. Yeah. We are seeing many of our members who are coming to the end of their leases are submitting lease renewals, which is a legal requirement to renew their lease, and those are being rejected yeah. um, automatically. So, you know, we, I, I've prophesied that 50% of pubs in this country will will go in the next two years. And that's people kind of chuckled at that, but I, I'm I'm sticking with that. I genuinely am. I think uh, I think the, situ- the situation for pubs in this country is uh, an existential crisis. Before the crisis, 19 pubs a week still shutting. Mm. Uh, I don't see that changing.
2: And an awful lot of those uh, organisations you talk about, uh, Dave, have obviously been uh, in a position, if they wanted to, to help out some of the pub owners, uh, pub uh, landlords, by the way. Sorry, the uh, you know the publicans who are renting property from them. But they've made it quite difficult, my understanding, is that they haven't allowed them uh, sort of any rental holidays. They've insisted that the rental, even if it's not paid, is paid back soon. Um, and that's not very helpful, really, is it?
4: No, and, and some of them are, have, have behaved appallingly. I mean, that being said, that 50% of the industry roughly have behaved very, very well. Um, there were some very notable breweries, Uh, Hall and Woodhouse worth a mention they're a small family brewer down in in Dorset they announced straight away they wouldn't be charging rent and and they kept that up right the way through Hmm. but some of the large companies in fact the majority of them um, they've deferred rent they have charged a percentage of rent Um, but as soon as you come out of lockdown a a lot of those tenants have been forced to do deals uh, to repay that rent uh, in very short periods of time and some of the um, some of the approaches that the business model, is, is, sorry, the business companies have, have approached, especially if you are tied, so you have to buy mm. your beer from them, yes. has been: we won't supply you unless you agree to these terms, right? And, 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 and I mean, presumably
2: at a particular price as
4: well. Uh, absolutely, yes. And I mean, you're paying ridiculous levels of of, of money for your beer as well. Um, so their behaviour has been what I would describe as very typical. Um, and, uh, you know, these are regulated companies, these are supposed to be regulated by, by legislation that um, people like myself helped introduce back in 2016, which has been a complete and utter failure. Uh, that was the pubs code. Um, and these, these businesses are supposed to act in a, in a fair and lawful manner, mm. which has been, you know, unfortunately, far from far from accurate over the last, well, prior to the last year, but especially in the last year, as I say, property companies, nothing more, nothing less. They just happen to own property that sells beer. Mm. And uh, it's a tragedy, really. is British heritage being lost.
2: Yes. And do you think that this uh, kind of hesitation now, which seems to have uh, locked itself into the equation since uh, since a couple of days ago, is is not going to help? Because obviously a lot of pubs were hopeful that on the 21st of June, um, you're back to normal. And some people have said to me um, that they won't go back to a pub until they can stand at the bar, order a drink and stand there drinking it.
4: I, I think that's very true. And I mean, that's the true. For many people, that is the real experience of Mm. going to a pub. Um, And not just, you know, we're not just talking about, you know, know, horizontal drinkers. We're talking about people who are... um, perhaps look, we have people within our village who come to our pub every evening mm. because they want to spend time talking to the bar staff across the bar chatting to them because that's their, their only point of contact sometimes yeah, but it's you also, know, that, it's that also religion, kind of it's you know?
2: a kind of community um outpost for people to get information on what's going on i mean i lived in a village in wiltshire uh, for a long time and the place to go if you wanted to know what was going on was the local pub
4: I've described it as the very first and original social media. Yeah, and I think, I think that's, that's right. really very true. It's a lot nicer um, than
2: social media as well, in most cases. You know, <laughs> it's,
4: well, it's a lot friendlier at times. That's for sure. Certainly yeah. more than Twitter. But it is. I mean, yeah. Look, the points you make are very valid, and they're very, very accurate. You've obviously, you know, it's great that I'm speaking to somebody who's got a really good understanding of what's going out there. Mm. It really is because, um you know, sometimes we're a little bit ill-served by the media who don't really get it, and uh, it's great to be speaking to someone yeah. that does. Well, listen, we we, a, we we.
2: we pride ourselves, Dave, on being the Home of Common Sense because we actually live like normal people. We don't live, you know, in Notting Hill in a mansion that's worth three million quid, go on television every so often uh, and talk about what the people uh, think they want to know about. You know, these are not people who mix with, with ordinary people. I mean, we're in a pub yesterday uh, with a great selection uh, of working men, working women, you know, the people who work in the pub themselves. You know, we know what people are going through.
4: Absolutely. It is um, It's tough. It really is. We're a little bit luckier than most. We're privately owned and we're uh, we're a freehold, so we can we can buy our beer at a good price. Um, our rent is accurate uh, and and well well assessed. Um, but without a doubt, the biggest crisis the industry faces is you know, is the rental debt mm. that they're carrying, the sea bills loans that some of them might have got, and the bounce fat loans that most of them got. Mm. Um, effectively, you know, pubs are going to be opening up. Are, are opening up to a restricted market, lower turnover. They're not going to be anywhere near their break-even point points, and they're going to be laden with a vast amount of debt. Mm. To anybody, that is a, that's just a crisis, you know, and it doesn't matter how. Some people need to be three or four times busier mm. than they were before COVID just to get to their break-even points. Yes. And that isn't going to happen. You just don't see it.
2: No, absolutely right. And if they don't allow us to know what's going to happen on 21st of June, I mean, I've said earlier today, I don't know why they're bothering to have a cabinet meeting now if they're not going to decide until about the 15th precisely what they're going to do next. Um, you can't really make plans, can you?
4: No, people, um, I mean, ordering, you know, you. I mean, people don't understand. A cap scale is a live product. You know, you have to buy it, you have to tap it, you have to let it settle. You know, if you're you're a food-led pub, you've got to buy, you know, your your food. I mean, Mm. people are having to do what we're doing. That's changing their menu from literally one week to the next. It is – it's almost impossible to plan. And uh, that hasn't helped, obviously, because people aren't sure what hours you're opening because you don't know yourself, because you don't know how many staff to bring back. And uh, it it is – yeah, it's uh, it's tough. <laughs> it really is tough. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, it's
2: absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? And I mean, just in terms of the the, the sheer numbers of fo- of people, in, and because the other thing that people forget is that you know it's it's in, in certain parts of London, certain pubs will be doing okay. Um, in certain parts of the country, though, where there's nobody going, where there's no people working, if it was a pub that was maybe used in the city here in London, where people from Lloyd's Insurance used to go, or a pub in Canary Wharf, there's nobody there. And so, until no. people start getting back to work properly, there's an awful lot of business that you won't even get anyway.
4: No, absolutely. So, I mean, I had a couple of members um, speaking to me last night. And one of them is based on, uh, based very close to a, a, a mainline railway station, and and their business is based around you know the kind of five o'clock and traffic that comes back from people uh, commuters, and they're just not there, as mm. you say. They're, they're, you know, so the market out there for for publicans is so wide and varied. It is almost impossible to treat them as a, as a catch-all situation. Uh, I mean, we're a tourist-led pub. Uh, we're in the Peak District in Derbyshire. Yeah. Uh, and that is, you know, so so we're not getting that footfall at this moment in time. In the summer, hopefully we will. We're, we're surviving on our, on our locals in our, in our small village. Mm. Um, and for, for a lot of pubs, that's not going to be enough.
2: It really isn't. Well, listen, Dave, I wish you all the best. Uh, as soon as we get some news that we can give you that's any good, we will certainly give it to you uh, and uh, just keep up the good fight and we'll see if we can get there. Dave Mountford, their founding member of the of British pubs, a publican himself, of course, somebody who um, has fought all the way through this pandemic in order to try and keep the pub open. And the fact now that the government is kind of wavering again and saying, oh, we're not sure Uh, we might have to actually uh, reverse the opening uh, of the restrictions, or we might have to not open it any further on June the 21st, well, it's simply not good enough. Just because SAGE are sitting there, you know, rubbing their little hands together, going, we don't want to leave, we want to stay here, we want to keep frightening you, we want to keep having a job, we want to keep going on television to tell everybody how dangerous everything is. Well, no, that's not the way forward, I'm afraid.
4: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on talk radio
2: now i don't know about you uh, but i haven't spent a lot of time in a bird hide i've seen them i go to the woods from time to time uh, and i've seen what happens inside bird hides people go in there and they've got a little square that they look out through sometimes with binoculars but the idea of a hide is that you can stand there for hours on end or sometimes sit there for hours on end if you're a bird watcher a twitcher some would call you um some people find it relaxing. Some people think it's a great way to spend a few hours, right? It's not for me. I'm not particularly keen on bird spotting or bird watching. But I am keen on the fact that we do have a great variety of birds in this country. We do have, in fact, um, a fantastic array of plumage, a fantastic array of different types of birds. We have cranes, even seagulls. We have pigeons, uh, We have blue tits, we have red tits, we have, you know, parrots, parakeets that fly around because somebody brought them here for a long time ago. But at the end of the day, does anybody really care what a poster of a bird looks like? Because there's a woman, right, uh, whose name is, by the way, Dr. Maya Rose Bird Girl Craig. That's her uh, signatory on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, She's apparently a bird watcher. She's 19 years of age. She's been watching birds since the age of seven. Uh, She's also uh, for race equality in nature. I don't know what that means. If a pigeon in London is from London, is it British? If it flies here from France, is it French? Uh, I just really can't understand the whole concept of this. She has complained to the RSPB, right, because apparently there are posters of birds inside these hides which are there to help you identify the birds that you're looking at through the hole in the hide, which are apparently sexist. She has claimed to the RSPB that the pictures of the female birds are smaller than the pictures of the male birds. Therefore, it has to change. She's calling for, guess what, a revolution. I mean, are you having a laugh? Are you having an absolute laugh? The fact that the birds are smaller than other birds is of no consequence, right? But of course, as you would expect the people at the RSPB have apologised and said, we are pleased that this has been brought to our attention. We will be reviewing these posters with our team internally. Really? Well, why don't you just not put any posters up there at all? And if you're so keen on making sure that everybody knows whether it's a female bird or a male bird, what are you going to do about the binary free birds? The ones that don't have a gender, the ones that don't identify as male or female, where are those pictures? Hey, where are they? Come on. Get with the programme. By the way, the only reason this woman's a doctor, it would seem, is that she was given an honorary doctorate when she was uh, 17 for services rendered. Well, that doesn't make you a doctor, so you should get rid of that for a start. Let's talk to Brendan O'Neill, editor of Spikes Online. Brendan, what can I I do? What can I say? Where are the gender-free
6: birds? It just gets more mad all the time. I remember a few months ago, there was a story about racism in gardening. And then there was another story about the countryside being too white. Apparently, the countryside is unwelcoming to people of colour. And now we're being told that birdwatching is sexist. And these posters are promoting a sexist view of the animal kingdom or the bird kingdom by making female birds smaller than male ones. It's just completely nuts. I think what we have in this country, there are lots of people out there who just love taking offence. Yes. And they go looking for things to be offended by. They get a thrill from being offended. It makes them feel important. It means they can join in a Twitter mob and get something changed or get someone cancelled. People just love the thrill of feeling offended and they're finding it in all sorts of places where it clearly doesn't exist. Well, they're clearly looking
2: for places to have an argument, aren't they? I mean, that's basically what they're doing. I mean, she calls herself a climate activist. You won't be surprised to know. Uh, She calls herself somebody who's for race equality in nature. What is that? I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, if you're an Indian elephant or an African elephant, I get the difference because the the ears are a different size. Um, I don't think that makes you one race of an elephant or another, though, does it?
6: it's uh, i have no idea what these people are talking about i increasingly find myself reading these kinds of stories and thinking what are you going on about yeah. and most people will be looking at this stuff and thinking this is completely bananas you know the animal kingdom nature this is not it's not a nice place right no. it's a pretty violent place it's 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 got the food chain they they hunt each other down if you want fairness and love and you know happy clappy atmosphere in nature, then you're in for a rude awakening. This is not a very nice place. I think what's happening is that people are just trying to project their own concerns and their own prejudices onto every single activity in this country so that everything comes to be racist or sexist or transphobic. And I think people are sick of this nonsense. They
2: really are. I mean, there is no universal basic income uh, in the tundra uh, of uh, what was formerly the USSR, you know, where things get eaten by other things because they're bigger than them and because they prey on them. I mean, maybe they'd like to completely reinvent the food chain, perhaps.
6: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, equality in the food chain, perhaps. <laughs> but you know, uh, y- you raise a good point, which is, what about trans birds? What about non-binary yeah. birds? What about birds that don't uh, uh, identify as the sex they were assigned with? We're well, constantly exactly. told that this is a natural part of life. So why isn't that reproduced in the animal kingdom as well? So I think they're they're in for they're they're on a hiding to nothing. The more they push these kinds of arguments, because lots most people just recognise that this is a load of stuff and nonsense that bird watching is not sexist the rspb is not sexist and these posters are not sexist and people really need to grow yeah, up yeah they really do but hopefully brendan what we
2: can hope is it becomes a kind of circular firing squad and they all start shooting each other uh, <laughs> because they're arguing about ridiculously different points in the same way at the moment that feminists are now arguing with the trans lobby because they can't agree on what a woman is
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the most interesting arguments of our time. I think you have these feminists who are saying, you know, if someone's got a penis and was born male, then you know, guess what, it's a man, it's Mm. a biological male. And we don't necessarily want that person inside our changing rooms inside our domestic violence shelters inside women's prisons. You know, feminists, many feminists are making a perfectly reasonable argument. But then you have the trans lobby saying, Listen, you can, identify, you can be whatever sex you want. You can click your fingers and become female in an instant and that just doesn't wash with most people. But you're right. What's happening is that sections of the left have tied themselves in knots over the past few decades. They've introduced so many wacky, politically correct, relativistic ideas that they now find that they can't even make sense of the world that they live in. So they've tied themselves in knots. The sooner they untie themselves and rejoin the world of the rational, the better it will be for them and everyone else. I
2: know, but it really does seem as though there is this kind of world spinning off to the side where those of us who are left in the sensible part um, are still actually relatively sensible. You know, we're not being driven mad by it. Because I'm firmly of the belief, Brendan, and about you, that it will all eventually die a death. It will all go away. And people will look back on this ridiculous period of history and go, what was it they were going on about? You know, know, when finally they were proved wrong scientifically,
6: they all had to shut up. I'm hoping that's what will happen. You know, I think I have this vision sometimes that in 10 or 15 years time, no one will admit to supporting giving puberty blockers to teenagers, Mm. for example. No one will admit to saying, oh, of course, someone with a beard and and male genitals uh, is literally a woman. I hope that when we come to our senses, people will be ashamed to admit that they supported these rather cranky ideas. You know, what's annoying about the woke ideology is that, The vast majority of this people in this country are in favor of equality and fairness. They think women should have the same shot at life as men. They believe in racial equality. They are not prejudiced. They are not judgmental in that old fashioned, uh, prejudiced way. No. But they don't want this woke extremism shoved down their throats. They don't want to be told that they have to see racism and transphobia and sexism in every single poster or idea or film or conversation. So they think that that stuff has gone way too far. And they just want to get things back onto an even keel
2: yeah i really do think you're absolutely right and i agree with you wholeheartedly brendan thank you very much indeed brendan and neil editor of spikes online talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio